We are New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. A community church in the city of Chicago, all over the city, for the good of the city. Right now, we are in the midst of our series, The Ten Commandments. Bum, bum, bum. A look at the original commandments and how they align with Christ's law. Wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message. with you. My name is Brennan, if you don't know me. And I'm going to be preaching to you this morning uh, on the second commandment. So we actually are going to be talking about idols and images, and you'll hear more about that. We've been doing a sermon series through the Ten Commandments, and we're going to be on the second one today. So you know, some people leave their stamp on history, and you remember them because you've seen their picture or their image. So you think about somebody like Abraham Lincoln, right? Like you immediately think about him probably sitting down and he's got long sideburns on his face or a tall hat or something like that. What about Napoleon? Have you ever heard of Napoleon? There was one site that I saw this week who listed uh, their opinion of the top 30 most influential people, most significant figures in history, and Napoleon came in second, according to this site. I don't know that much about Napoleon, um, but Napoleon was a military leader during the French Revolution in the 1700s. And like all great leaders, Napoleon wanted to be remembered. So what does he do? He hires an artist to paint his portrait. And here we have it. Maybe you've seen this picture, Napoleon charging on the horse. And Napoleon was a little bit different than most people that you think about who want their portrait painted or their picture taken if they're famous. Most of the time they want to sit down, put their hands in their lap, smile for the camera or the painter in his day. But Napoleon was different. He didn't want to sit still. He said he hated the idea of sitting still in front of an artist. And instead, he wanted an action shot. He didn't care about people remembering all the details of his physical portrait. He wanted people to remember his character, his power, his strength, his victory. Images communicate something. They're visual teachers. You know the famous cliche, a picture's worth a thousand words? Pictures are powerful. And maybe that feels a little bit distant, you know, crazy, arrogant Napoleon, like wanting an action shot painted. But think about it for ourselves. Maybe bring it home to social media. You know, we take 30 selfies, spend 10 minutes picking out the best one, another five minutes picking out the best filter, and then post it, and then come back an hour later, if we can wait that long, to see how many people liked it. That's the Instagram way. Or you can think about the Facebook way, where we get on a few times a week, a few times a day, whatever it is, your routine, your rhythm, and you post that special picture. You don't post pictures of you know, your McDonald's, your Chipotle, your turkey sandwich that you're eating six days a week. You post a picture of that perfect meal that you made on your day off when you had time to make it look good. And you say, oh, look, I'm just eating this today. Or you don't post a picture of your trip to the laundromat but you definitely post some pictures of that destination vacation. So we know how powerful images are. 
They have the power to point people to our most wanted version of ourselves, even though it's probably not true to our normal, everyday reality. And as we study the Ten Commandments and think about what on earth these ancient commandments have to say to us in the 21st century in Chicago, it gets really interesting with the Second Commandment. Because the Second Commandment is all about images, idols, and how they relate to us and to God. So if you have a Bible, flip it to Exodus 20. I'm also going to have it on the screen here. So hopefully you'll be able to see that. But otherwise, just turn there in your Bible Flip to it on your phone, Exodus 20. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. That'll include the first commandment, what we talked about last week, and then we'll read the second commandment. So here's what Exodus 20, verse 1 says. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments." And I want to point us back, just real quick as well, to what Galen talked about last week. The Ten Commandments are a gracious gift from God. You know, you read something like that, and it is, it's a lot of don'ts. It's what you don't do. You know, it can sound harsh to our modern ears. But before God gives a single command, He reminds His people that He delivered them. He saved Israel before he gave them his law to obey. In Exodus 4, Israel is called God's son. And God has now caused his child to be born again, so to speak, through the waters of the Red Sea, out of Egypt, out of darkness. And now he's teaching his son how to walk. As Exodus 19.4 says, I have that one here as well, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He carried them like on wings. And he's brought them to a mountain of safety. He's brought them in and he's planted them on this mountain as a new creation. They're no longer Pharaoh's slaves, but now they are God's son and daughters and bride. Makes a covenant with them like a husband would a wife. And the commandments are boundary markers and guardrails that help us live in relationship to God and in relationship with one another. So you can see all of that in how the story of Scripture unfolds, but also even just in that little preface right before that first commandment. I am the Lord your God who saved you. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to images and idols. Think about it like that. It's the first father-son talk, like the whole book of Proverbs. These are laws and commands, child, before you're good. 
And embedded in this relationship is this second commandment. And I think it's one of the hardest to understand. I mean, it took, you know, some, some study time this week. <laughs> like, it's not quite as straightforward, especially because I think we have to bridge into our context. Uh, we're here in Chicago. Probably most people in our congregation aren't bowing down and making wooden and stone idols and images. Perhaps some of you came out of that lifestyle. Who knows? But for most of us, it's the difficult one to understand, and it takes um, a look. It, it takes some time to look into the context of what's going on. So let's talk about this one today. One of the main points that I want you to see is that the second commandment is about worshiping God as He is, not who we imagine Him to be. So the first point today, God is who He says He is. We'll dive deeper into some application at the end, but this is foundational. This is like a foundational truth drawn from this commandment. God is who He says He is. So again, Israel, God's son, God's bride, they're leaving Egypt. And in Egypt, the people worshipped a lot of gods. They worshipped a lot of gods, and a lot of times those gods were represented by idols and images. And here's Israel in this middle kind of wilderness territory. They're on their way to the promised land. And in the land that they're going to, there's Philistines and there's Canaanites and there's other nations that also worshiped a lot of gods. And those gods were represented by idols and images. So Israel is vulnerable to temptation around them, behind them, ahead of them, and they need to hear God's word. Now, in some ways, it sounds like the second commandment is repetitive. In the first commandment, God already told us not to worship other gods. So what does this commandment add? Well, think about it like this. The first commandment is general. It tells us who to worship, and it's kind of an overarching command that all of the other ones fit under. The second, third, and fourth commandments get specific with how we are to worship God. So the first commandment is about who we worship. Second is about how we worship. And the second says that we are not to worship God however we like. Believe whatever we want to believe about Him and trade or replace His invisible glory with images of creatures. So let's look at each part of this command. Uh, I think it's verse 3 here. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So heaven, earth, and the waters. Comprehensive. All creation. It covers everything. So basically, don't make an image of anything. But you know, this question always comes up, like what do we do with art, like the visual arts? Or what do we do with, um, yeah, just artistry, beautiful things that we create? Is this commandment forbidding even that? And I don't think so. Not at all, actually, because a few chapters later, when God is with his people and he tells them to build the tabernacle, God actually hires artists to adorn the tabernacle. So listen to Exodus 31, 
It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. It's a big introduction. It's also got some walk-up music going on there. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So here's God hiring Bezalel to go work in the temple and even giving Bezalel the Spirit of God to create and design beautiful things to go in the temple, carving wood to work in gold and bronze. I mean, this sounds like Second Commandment is being broken by God. Later, the temple, which is like this, basically the same thing as the tabernacle, except the tabernacle was like a tent, it was portable. The temple was secure, it was permanent, like a building. And later in the temple, it's filled with images of trees, flowers, animals, and angels. All things you can see in 1 Kings 7 when it's being built. And it's symbolic of the presence of God in Eden. It's like a little picture, a little microcosm of the whole creation. So what's going on? Is God breaking his own commandment or is something else happening? Something else is happening. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's the problem. The command is against worshiping a false image or portrait of God. God is who He says He is. And we must worship God on His own terms for who He is, not as we imagine Him to be or as we would like Him to be. No created thing in creation or in our heads, our brains, could capture and contain the fullness of God. And remember Napoleon on the horse. Images teach. The purpose of an image is to communicate something. They're powerful, visible teachers. God is the invisible creator, and he can't be contained by an image of a creature. So the second commandment is really like the command in the New Testament, to live by faith and not by sight. We can't see God, but the good news is that we can hear His voice. His words are called bread from heaven. And in His word, He describes Himself with vivid imagery. Egypt had relationship with their gods through idols that were dead wood and stone. But God had relationship with his people through his living words. It took God a thousand pages to describe his glory through a story that we could understand and yet never exhaust. I feel like I'm always learning new things about the Bible. And the Bible is a book written in human language that couldn't even exhaust the fullness of God, even though it's perfectly true. He could not be represented by an image like the gods of Egypt could. Listen to 1 Peter 1.8. The Apostle Peter says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. 
Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your sight. Nope. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. It's hard to live in a world where we have to keep the second commandment. Because just like Israel, we want something tangible, something we can touch and hold on to that is like the presence and essence of God. It's hard to live by faith. But there's a world of good news in the second commandment. It doesn't just tell us what not to do. It tells us what to do. We can't see God, but we can hear Him. So this commandment teaches us to treasure God's words. God is who He says He is, is foundational. So there's two applications. The first one, we should treasure God's words. Now Israel, take it back to the story. I want you to get there. You know, you're in the desert. You're in Mount Sinai. You're with Israel. Israel didn't last long following this commandment. They heard it. They knew it. But a few chapters later, they make a golden calf. And they worship it for delivering them from Egypt. And I think I got a picture of the golden calf here. So if you can imagine setting that up in the desert, worshiping it. But here's what's interesting. The people didn't believe the calf itself was God or a God. They were still trying to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The true God, but in the wrong way in a way they imagined and made up for themselves. This commandment is like two sides of a coin. On one side, God is expanding the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. Don't worship anything except me. Not idols or images or anything. But on the other side of the coin, God shifts the focus, and He's saying, don't even worship me in the wrong way by imagining me or creating me as you please. So I can show you why I think this is the case. In Exodus 32, Moses is on the mountain. He's talking with God. The people are down below. They've already heard the Ten Commandments. And they get impatient. So they walk up to Aaron and they say, you know, Aaron, Aaron, make us gods. Make us gods. Like Moses is gone. He's not with us. And he's our mediator with God. He's our tangible symbol of the presence of God. So he's gone. We don't know where he's at. He's been gone for days. That must mean God is gone. So make us idols. Here's our rings. Here's our earrings, our jewelry, our gold. Throw in the fire and make us a God. So they took Moses' absence for Yahweh's absence. And in the world of Egypt that they just came out of, it makes sense. The presence of the God was represented by the idol. They wanted their own image of God's presence. And after Aaron makes the calf, the people say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They know that Yahweh, the one true God, brought them out of Egypt. They know that he was fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know it was the God that speaks directly with Moses but they wanted to worship this God in their own way by doing something familiar, comfortable, and acceptable 
in the eyes of the world. They wanted to make God in their own image. So they're not saying, this cow brought you out of Egypt, and yet in a way they are, because they're connecting that statue that they imagined and made with the true God and saying, this is his presence with us. This is his power with us. This is his beauty with us. Now you might say, we're no longer in Israel, we're in Egypt, we're in Chicago, okay? So you might say, wow, the Israelites are crazy. Like they're uh, kind of ridiculous, that's, that's just messed up. I mean, God just saved them out of Egypt and now they're representing him with the mascot of Longhorn Steakhouse. Like, okay, I'm not there, check, second commandment, good. Let's move on. With as many things that are messed up in my life, at least I'm not breaking this one, you know? But, okay, before we leave and call it a day, let's ask, how do we make God in our own image today? What idols do we worship instead of God? Ezekiel 14 says that the elders of Israel had taken their idols into their hearts. Before idols of wood or stone are carved, they flow from the heart. So they really weren't ultimately about stone and wood. They were about worship. How do we trade what God says about himself for familiar, comfortable, acceptable lies about God. We say we would never carve up wood and stone, and yet we are all guilty of setting up our own false images of God. Listen to Romans 122. It says, claiming to be wise, and this is just general talking about all the world, all peoples, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, still good. Pastor, not doing that. Check. Keep reading. Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Maybe some of that language resonates. I know it does with me. I'm not setting up statues in my house and praying before them. But how do I dishonor my body? How do I exchange the truth of God for a lie? How do I worship creatures rather than the Creator? There's probably a thousand applications that I can make from that kind of language. Idols were not gods. They stood for gods, represented gods, symbolized gods. They pointed to the gods. They taught about the gods. And because they are made up by our own imagination, they lie about what God is actually like. The golden cow sounds ridiculous to us, but it actually wasn't random for Israel. In Egypt, the cow was the symbol of strength. They needed power. They were weak, hungry, thirsty, possibly dying in the desert. We worship what's comfortable, familiar, acceptable, and safe. Think back to our previous sermon series on different Jesus. 
Every time and culture makes Jesus into their own image. So we have pictures and icons of white Jesus, African Jesus, Asian Jesus, hippie Jesus, gangster Jesus. You name it, we've got it. Just Google it. <laughs> of course, be careful. Who knows what kind of Jesus come up. Israel wants Yahweh the golden cow. We want Jesus who makes no demands on us. We want God who lets me gossip because I don't mean harm by it. We twist the words of God to suit our preferences, and that is setting up a false image to use to relate to God. We say God is just like this, or God would never do that. And our claims about God are often just reflections from a mirror that we're holding up to ourselves. Based on our opinions, our whims, our emotions, we make God into our desired image without thinking about whether or not it squares with His words. God is who He says He is, not who we want Him to be. Now, you're thinking, okay, goodness gracious, I thought you said there was a world of good news in this commandment, but you just depressed us with our own golden calves. And I'm just speaking general to cover all of us. I'm sure we can name some very specific things. So what's the good news? God teaches sinners like us what He's like. And that's called grace. He will not be contained in an idol of wood or our idolatrous thoughts. Instead, He reveals Himself to us in a book, in a story of words, so we treasure God's words. God talks about Himself like a king, a father, a shepherd. He uses imagery, verbal imagery. Jesus says, I am the water of life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread that came down from heaven. In Exodus 32, Israel wants God the golden cow. But in Exodus 33, Moses, on the mountain with God, praying over the people of Israel, pleading for forgiveness, he says, God, show me your glory. So he wants to see God's glory as well in God's presence, but he asks. And God says he will show his glory by proclaiming his goodness and his name. So listen to Exodus 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, because he heard the name of the true God, which sets us up for next week. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm sure we'll learn all about what that means, but I think it means more than just not saying, oh my gosh, you know, except not the slang, the real thing. It means revering and honoring and worshiping this God for who he is. And oddly enough, when God reveals himself, 
He doesn't look like a golden cow. So if you had a sheet of paper and you were writing down some attributes or some character traits, what's God the golden cow like? I got here golden, shiny, metal, strong, and it can't see, hear, talk, or move. Okay, that's one column. Let's make another column. What's Jesus in our image like? Well, nice, polite, revolutionary, cool. For me, he's usually a little bit critical of other people's sins and immaturity, but patient with my own. But a third column, what's the God of Scripture like? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, loyal, consistent, and a just judge. So we treasure these words. Psalm 19.7 that Anna read, The Word of God rejoices the heart, and it's more to be desired than gold, even fine gold and sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's gift of His Word is good news. And we should treasure His words. So the take-home is that back in Egypt, back in the ancient times, the idols and the images were not gods. They represented gods for the people in their presence. And we do the same things today. And, you know, later in Scripture, idolatry, this concept of idols, it gets expanded. It's anything we worship. Any other God, it relates to the first commandment. iPhones, you know, I mean, social media, our presentation in front of the world, our spouse, our children, our lack of spouse, our lack of children, anything that we worship and desire above God. But here in the second commandment, I think specifically, The idea is that we're trying to relate to the God we know and believe in, the true God, but in our own way, through false images, twisting His words, neglecting His words to make Him look like we want Him to look. There's another final application. Treasure God's words because God is who He says He is, and He says that to us. He speaks to us, so we treasure His words. Not only that, but we should celebrate the true image of God. See, there's a deep irony in the second commandment. God says, don't make an image of any created thing to worship and serve. But here's what's amazing. The amazing irony. God has already made His own image. People are not to make God in their image, but God has made people in His image image. God has living, breathing, moving images in this world. People are the images of God, which means we break God's heart behind this commandment when we neglect to love our neighbor. So in the ancient world, a king, he would build his palace, build his temple and his kingdom, And right there in the temple, he would set up a statue, an image of himself. God looks like he does something similar. 
God creates all things, the world, out of nothing. Nothing existed until God spoke it into existence. God creates all things. He fashions and forms all things. He sets up His temple in His kingdom, which is the Garden of Eden, His temple presence. And right there in that garden He planted, He put Adam and Eve, people, to represent and reflect Him in the world. That's what it means to be an image of God. The image of God is not some hidden part of us in our brain or our heart or our emotional life or something we can do or something like that. It's not this part of us that we can live without. I think the image of God is like all of us. Like you are an image of God because you're a person. The image of God isn't a part of you, but you are an image of God. Does that distinction make sense? Simply by being a person, you image and reflect God. Because unlike that cow, you are a living, moving, breathing, seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking person, all of it, the whole package. Not just one part or the other. So when I see your faces, I see images of God. It's amazing to me that God is so big, invisible, great, awesome, powerful, beautiful, glorious, that He needs billions of different images to reflect His glory. You are an image of God. And when you go to work and you hate being there and you're frustrated with people, when you look at them, you're seeing walking reflections of their Creator. And when you're frustrated with your kids or with your spouse, and they've done it again. They're seeing, walking, moving, breathing reflections of their Creator. But it gets even better. The perfect image of God is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says that Christ Jesus is the image of God, the imprint of His nature, the radiance of His glory. In John 14... Jesus is about to die, and he tells his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we are depressed and discouraged because we are not good images of God. Certain days, many days, most days that I'm not a good image of God, and I want to be, but I'm broken, I'm a sinner. We're fallen, but God has saved us by the cross of Jesus, and He's remaking us into the image of Christ. That's the New Testament definition of discipleship. You're being remade in the image of Christ. So we look to God. If you want to see God, you don't make it up as you go. You look to His Word, ultimately, where He reveals the truth about Himself the truth that leads straight to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We get His words, His whole book. We get each other reflecting God's glory, albeit in a broken way. And yet we get Jesus, the God-man, who is the perfect image of God. And grace keeps coming down because not only 
do we have those things. It doesn't stop there. Not only do we hear God's word about himself, and not only do we see each other as images of God, and not only do we see Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us as the perfect image of God, but Jesus himself, he left us two tangible pointers to his presence. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. What a fitting way to get to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper by looking at the second commandment. Definitely didn't think that was going to happen when I started this sermon series, but there's so much here. Through baptism, Christ delivers us out of the sin, slavery, oppression of Egypt and gives us new life. And through the Lord's Supper, Christ draws near to us and points us to his body and blood. So that's where we end today. How do we keep the second commandment as new covenant children of God? We're not under the whole Mosaic law and covenant anymore. Christ has set us free. And yet, how do we take God's heart behind this covenant and apply it to our lives? Do exactly what we're doing. We gather as the church to hear the words of God from Scripture, to eat the bread and juice that brings us into the presence of God, to see each other's faces in person or online during this strange time, to get reflections of the image of God, and to worship Jesus Christ who is the perfect image of God. That is what we do instead of setting up our own images. And boy, it's a process. You really don't know that you have so many images of God in your head that are false until you grow through a process, discipleship. As you read scripture, as you pray, as you meet with other fellow believers and saints, God replaces our images and idols of him with his truth. So there's hope for us, actually. Amidst a lot of do's and don'ts, there's a huge, beautiful, loving heart behind these commands that we can grow with God and become like Him, remade in the image of Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ Jesus as Savior, friend, Lord, as the one who died and rose for you, then I want to say to you that now you do. You know that that's who Jesus can be for you. So I encourage you just to ask for prayer. Um, we'll have uh, our elders at the back. Maybe Inyaz, he's standing over here, and uh, Corey's running the visual, but I think he can probably go back there. And Susan and Kara, they'll be in the back. They can, would love to pray with you. If you want to follow Jesus this morning, think about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Think about what it means to be baptized. Think about what it means to become a member of the church, his body and bride. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, and I'm sure there's a thousand applications we can make today to grow together. I know there is for me, because there's so many things that capture my attention besides God, and so many ways that I twist God's words and see God in ways that I don't want to anymore. I shouldn't. So whatever that is for you, I want you to think about that as you pray this morning. Think about how God wants to rewire you and reshape you 
to seeing his perfect images. You have been listening to New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. If you have been blessed by this message, please let us know. Now go and live a new life.